Good morning. Well, thank you for that introduction and for the and for the correction. <laughs> I fear I fear I'm a little too feral for San Francisco. <laughs> So is anyone here uh, for the first time? Anyone new? Two, three, four. Well, welcome. Welcome for welcome uh, to Houston Zen Center. I hope you find your your home, spiritual home here. And um, those of us who have been coming to Zen Centers for a while forget, I think, how much courage it takes to walk in the door for the first time. So, um, without anybody seeing you do it, give yourself a pat on the back. <laughs> so, at San Antonio Zen Center, over the past year, once once a week, a group of us get together and we. I begun reading through the sutras. So Wednesday evenings for half an hour, we all read aloud the sutra. So we began with the Lotus Sutra and then finished the Lankavatara Sutra right before our interim. And now we are working on the Vimalakirti Sutra, one of, one of the really juicy ones. And in the very first uh, day, we just uh, had our second reading, so we're still quite early into the book. Um, at the end of chapter one, there was a section that caught my attention that I would like to read aloud and to share some thoughts with. So this chapter is called The Purification of the Buddha Field. And this is the uh, begins with the Buddha speaking. The purity of the Bodhisattva's Buddha field reflects the purity of living beings. The purity of the living beings reflects the purity of his gnosis. The purity of his gnosis reflects the purity of his doctrine. The purity of his doctrine reflects the purity of his transcendental practice. And the purity of his transcendental practice reflects the purity of his own mind. Thereupon, magically influenced by the Buddha, the Venerable Shariputra had this thought. If the Buddha field is pure only to the extent that the mind of the Bodhisattva is pure, then when Shakyamuni Buddha was engaged in the career of the Bodhisattva, his mind must have been impure. Otherwise, how could this Buddha field appear to be so impure? The, the Buddha knows what he's thinking and says, so what do you think? Is it is it the fault of the stars in the moon that the blind cannot see them? Shariputra says, no, it's the fact that they're blind. And the Buddha says, it's the same way with the Buddha fields. It's due to our limited uh, vision that it appears impure. I'm paraphrasing greatly. 
Then the Brahma Sikh insists to the venerable Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, do not say that the Buddha field of the Tathagata is impure. Reverend Shariputra, the Buddha field of the Tathagata is pure. I see the splendid expanse of the Buddha field of the Lord Shakyamuni as equal to the splendor of, for example, the abodes of the highest deities. Then, this is where we really kind of get into the meat of it, uh, or the tofu of it. Um, then the venerable Shariputra said to the Brahma Sikhan, As for me, O Brahma, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks and its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with dung. And Brahma Sikhan says, Well, there's your answer. I mean, you're not seeing things the way they are. And then the Buddha reaches down with his big toe and touches the earth. And suddenly it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, until it resembled the universe of the Tathagata Ratnavyuha, called Anattagunaratavyuha. Everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. Then the Buddha said to the venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, do you see this splendor of the virtues of the Buddha field? Shariputra replied, I see it, Lord. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I never before heard of or beheld. The Buddha said, Shariputra, this Buddha field is always thus pure. But the Tathagata makes it appear to be spoiled by many faults in order to bring about the maturity of inferior living beings. For example, Shariputra, the gods of the Treya Strimsa heaven all take their food from a single precious vehicle. Yet the nectar which nourishes each one differs according to the differences of the merits each has accumulated. Just so, Shariputra, living beings born in the same Buddha field see the splendor of the virtues of the Buddha fields of the Buddhas according to their own degrees of purity. Then the Buddha withdraws his big toe and it disappears. So normally, uh, Shariputra, in a lot of the texts, a lot of the sutras, um, is beheld as one of the very wisest. Right? Uh, he's he's known as the foremost of the wise. But uh, in this text, and among some others, his role is to um, present the teachings of another school. And I think I would also say, in this instance, he's kind of a stand-in for us. He's expressing a limited view um, and not seeing the big picture. So it's always nice to have someone we can relate to, right, in these texts. It's, it's no good if everybody's floating. 
<laughs> it's really hard to um, identify in a way and, and, and bring the teachings home, so to speak, or digest them in a way that really lands for us. So Shari Putra says, as for me, O Brahma, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks, and its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with dung. This is our, this is a prime example of our habit patterns, our, our habitual way of seeing and interacting with the world. Um, it's highly conditioned, and it's very limited. It's very, very limited. It's limited by these by these lenses that we wear, not these, but these lenses that we all have. These conditioned lenses to see the world in a certain way. The writer Umberto Eco says, "The world appears to us." as it appears to us, and it is impossible for it to appear otherwise. Right, so this is our normal, habitual, suffering way of interacting with the world. This is why we come to Zen centers. At some point, if we're lucky, if we're really lucky, we reach a point where we say, This way I'm living my life is not working. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Um, I'm just going through the motions and I'm suffering. So if we're lucky, we reach this point and we think, oh, okay, what are my options? What are my options? <laughs> for this practitioner, I read Buddhism for many years. I was a nightstand Buddhist. <laughs> you know? And it wasn't until uh, in recovery language, I hit my bottom, my emotional bottom. I thought, okay. My cage has been shaken enough so it's time it's time to do something with this interest and when we come when we first begin practicing we bring our habit patterns our conditioned way of thinking with us it takes a while it takes a while to begin turning the ship around And if we're lucky, we have really good company to help us turn the ship. So it's interesting that in this, in this sutra, in this instance, the Buddha touches the ground with his foot and creates this image. So I'm sure some of you are aware that in many cultures, the feet are unclean. 
You don't, uh, like in Buddhism, you do not point your feet at the altar. You don't point your feet at other people. And when we're coming to sit, when we're uh, moving our, our cushions around, we don't kick the zabatons around. We use our hands to move them. It brings us to a different relational experience. If we move the zabatan with our hands as opposed to nudging it around or kicking it around with our feet. If we're just kicking it around with our feet, we're saying, oh, you exist for my benefit. I can do with you as I want. But if we use our hands, we are in relation to the zabatan. So the Buddha, he's doing something unexpected. If you remember in the story of the Buddha's awakening, when he calls upon Mara, a witness, he touches the earth with his hand. In this case, he's using an unclean foot, so to speak, to touch the earth to bring about an image. So he's doing something unexpected, getting the, I'm sure, getting the attention of everybody in the process. But he's using the unclean to bring about this image. And whenever I say unclean, uh, there are quotation marks. You know, um, And we get the, we get this image of everyone seated on a throne. Like that's that's all I see right now is all these people on thrones in this room. They look like chairs, but they're really thrones. So it's quite a gift that he probably everyone was I'm sure quite startled when he uses his foot to touch the ground and not his hand. And this is another really crucial aspect of it, is having good friends in the Dharma to help show us the way. Having good, having good Dharma friends, having good peers, having good mentors and teachers. a huge gift because these these teachers these mentors and our peers if they are willing to tell us what we don't want to hear will help bring our attention to our conditioned way of thinking give us a little bit of uh, better medicine So teachers aren't always going to touch the ground with their foot and show you this magical image. I don't have that ability. Maybe I missed something at Dharma transmission. Uh, 
but I don't I don't recall my teacher passing that on to me. But our our mentors and our teachers can offer us another way to see things. For example, the Buddha is saying to, uh, with his actions, to Shariputra, can you see things a little differently? Can you look at this world with its flaws and its suffering? Maybe just see it a little different. Not make it about me so much. Um, there's a story that the student goes to his master and says, where is, where is the Tao? And the master says, it's all around you. And the student says, well, how come I can't see it? And the master says, because your me is in the way. <laughs> so this is one of the one of the, the gifts of the teacher is to help us soften the me a bit, where we can see things differently. None of this can happen without a willingness to see things differently. It's like someone coming to a, a therapist and saying, uh, I don't want to suffer anymore, but I don't want to change. <laughs> <laughs> We have to be willing to change in order to suffer less. Otherwise, we're, we're wasting our time on the cushion if we're not willing to change. Or if we're not willing to change yet, yeah, if we're if we completely and wholeheartedly recognize, no, um, I'm not ready to change yet, but I aspire to. I aspire to be willing to change. And that's another way that the conversation starts. It's just having the aspiration to do things differently. Ah, maybe that time to come, I'm completely open to it. Just not right now, you know. Um, I often use the uh, recovery slogans because there's so many good ones. And one of the very best ones I've found that helps with Buddhism with, with practice is fake it till you make it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just fake it till you make it. Just keep showing up. Let that aspiration build. Let that willingness to change build. <clears throat> and surround yourself with good company along the way. So after he has shown Shariputra this vision, and Shariputra says, I see it. The Buddha says, Shariputra, this Buddha field is always thus pure. But the Tathagata makes it appear to be spoiled by many faults in order to bring about the maturity of inferior living beings. That's a... It's a very wordy say, uh, way of saying that a good teacher, a good mentor, let's just work it out for ourselves. They, they offer us encouragement, insight, feedback, but we are the, we are the only ones that can do our own work. No one, no one can do our work for us. And that's the other part. Are we willing to do our own work? Are we ready to do that work? Yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much in yes, isn't there? <clears throat> Even when we say no, can we find the yes? Can we look and see what we're saying yes to if we say no? So yes means yes, and no means yes. So have to look for the yes. And the teacher knows that they can't do our work for us. They know that we are the only ones that can do the work. When we're new in practice, we want the teacher to do the work for us. The story of Suzuki Roshi giving a lecture and somebody, and he's taking questions and somebody said, why haven't you enlightened me yet? (laughs) And a very very calmly said, I'm making my best effort. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. It's the point that we begin doing our own work. And this is something I say ad nauseum in San Antonio. When we begin doing our own work, when we begin taking responsibility for our practice, is the day that we stop giving up our power. We stop putting it in the teacher's lap to fix us, to make it better. 
this is when we say, this is, this is up to me. This is up to me. No one else. And then there's great liberation in that. There is um, an untold amount of liberation and the recognition that we are responsible for our own practice and, and realizing it in our own way. It's a gift that is almost on par with um, having a teacher that we connect with and that we resonate with and whom we can hear. Recognizing that we are responsible for our practice, that we have to work it out. That's when we start growing up. That is when we really begin growing up as practitioners. We can't stop being a teenager. Oh, yes, yes, okay. It's on me. It's on me. So, in the way that this is really brought forth in this section that I read is the fact that the Buddha withdraws this vision. He doesn't leave it hanging out there for everybody to everybody to enjoy. It's like you know, you got you got you got to get there. I can. I can show show you to an extent. I can tell you to an extent. Mm-hmm. But only you know your own heart. Only you know your own practice. And what it is that uh, nurtures that practice. And where the landmines are. It's a very valuable aspect to practice knowing when we're skating on thin ice. Knowing, you know, knowing where that is. There's not always a sign that says thin ice. But knowing the areas that we struggle. Knowing what, what the company is wholesome for us. You know, if you're if you're in recovery, it may not be a good idea to hang out with your friends that are drinking, right? Or using or whatever it is. Oh okay. That's one way I take care of myself. So this passage is, uh, for this practitioner, there's there's just so much in in this passage, so much encouragement there. And any time we're reading any of these sutras, um, 
sometimes there can sometimes there can be some challenging language in it or muddy language we don't quite understand what's 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 happening it's helpful to look for the words behind the words and see what's being See if we can tease out what's being ex uh, expressed or what we think is being ex expressed. So, are we willing to let go of our conditioned habits? Our flawed way of being, our flawed way of thinking that causes us and others suffering. Are we willing to change our view? Or at the least, are we, do we have the aspiration to be willing to do this? And finally, are we willing to have things be a little different? To take responsibility for our practice? Thank you very much. Get extend through